I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. This morning we're going through a, a lengthier passage than normal, so you will be helped to have your Bible open. Um, just use that, the text as your outline and follow along there. As you get to Mark 6, if you look at the heading above verse 14, it probably says something like, the death of John the Baptist. That's what mine says. Yours probably says something similar. It's a fine heading, but I think it falls woefully short of preparing us for the story that we're about to read. I'll tell you on the front end that it's a story that at minimum is rated PG-13. We're going to try to keep it as close to G as we can this morning, but just even the text itself tells of a story that's messy. If it was adapted for film by one of the modern-day film companies, you wouldn't go see it, probably. You wouldn't take your kids to see it. It's gruesome. It's a story about incestuous adultery, about unfaithfulness, and about broken families. It's a picture of the worst kind of unrestrained power. At the heart of the story is a gruesome murder. One of the main characters is a seductive dancer who entertains at a party. It's a story about manipulation, about desire. It's messy, but I'm glad we have it because it reveals to us human nature. It can be easy to look around and think things are worse than they have ever been. Well, church, read God's word. This is the nature of our hearts. And what we're going to see in this text this morning is the deceitfulness and the destructiveness of sin. How bent we can get. You, I'm talking about us, church, right? Not just King Herod, but how easily we can get bent on living for ourselves and living for our sin. We're going to see in the story how sin leads to destruction. That's part of what's important for us to see in this passage. But really, I don't think that's the main reason we're given this story in the Gospel of Mark. It's a small part. Here's what I think the real underlying theme of the passage is, and what I would suggest is the main point of what I want you to hear. And you know, Sometimes I just think it's best just to come out the front. Let me just tell you on the front end what I think the main point of the passage is. In case I get off track, you'll know. This passage shows us that as Christ's followers, who are called to take a message of repentance and faith to the world, we're going to a people who are fully committed to their sin. And so as we go to them, we can expect opposition. Say that again. We're, we're called to take a message of repentance and faith to the world, but the world we're going to is a world that's committed to living for themselves and for their sin. So, as we go to them with this message of repent and believe, you can expect opposition. And at the heart of this story is someone who is stuck in their sin, fixed on themselves, and refuses to hear the truth. And we'll see the result for the servant of Christ. Now, as we point out to the world and we say, you know what, they're, they're living for themselves, they're living for their sin. I think we, don't we all understand the struggle to accept the gospel? I know for me, I still continue to struggle with letting go of some of my own sin. Why? Well, it's because it's our nature that we want what we want. And we don't want to give up what we desire 
we get it. At our core, we are sinners, and we love sin. As I thought about it, I couldn't help but think about how often I hear my boys say this. Maybe you've heard this phrase, parents. But I want to. It's a response more times than I care to admit. When I suggest that they should not do what they're doing, and their response to me, their father, right? But I want to. Does that just happen to my house? Does that ever happen to your house too? So I respond back. No, no, I'm telling you, you need to stop. I know what you want to do, but I'm telling you not to do it. You need to obey, and they come back again. But I like doing this. I don't want to stop. After all, who am I to suggest that they quit doing something that seemed like such a good decision to them? Standing on the back of the couch, right? Seems like a good decision. Who am I to tell them that's not what they should do? We can laugh. We can say, oh, well, kids will be kids. But you know what we see in our kids? The sinful nature that we still struggle with. Because don't, don't you get there too? But I want to. I like doing this. We like to live on our own terms. We don't want to be told to change. We don't want to turn away from what we've chosen to do. Or to use the biblical language, we don't like repentance. But of course, repenting and the need for repentance is at the core of the gospel, isn't it? This is the message that we are to proclaim. This is the message that we are to believe that we are called to repent of our sin, repent of loving ourselves, and to trust Christ. Let's get to Mark. Do you remember the message that Jesus went proclaiming? If you flip back to chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. This is the message that Jesus goes throughout Galilee proclaiming that people need to turn from their sin and turn from themselves and to trust him. Repent. It was the message of Jesus, and this was the message that he sent his disciples out to preach. If you are with us last week, hopefully you remember, we talked about the sending out of the 12, that first missions trip. So Jesus sends out the 12 to go into the region of Galilee, proclaiming the good news. And we read in verse 12, chapter 6, verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed what? That the people should repent. This was the message of Jesus. It was the message of the disciples. It's the message that we heard and believed. And it's the message that we've been sent out to proclaim that you can't keep living for yourselves because to live for yourself and in your sin is death. But if you repent and believe, you can be saved, you can be forgiven. It's the gospel. We're sinners, and the only way to be forgiven our sins is to repent. But it's not a popular message, is it? Not only because we love our sin but because we live in a world where it's considered the height of arrogance to suggest that there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. We live in a time of personal choice, autonomy. 
and to suggest that someone's way of life is something that should be repented of is considered way out of bounds, except on a couple of key issues, right, that change from year to year. It's supremely unloving, the world tells us, to suggest that someone's way of life is an offense to God. And yet, we believe that it's supremely unloving to let someone keep living in a way that will lead them to death. So we're ambassadors of hope. We're ambassadors of a message of repentance. But what I've already said and what you know is that it will not always be well-received. Increasingly, we're told that our message is not only undesirable, but hateful. Have you heard that? Get used to it. It's coming. You preach a message of hate because we are suggesting to people that the way they live is something to be turned away from. We're arrogant and hateful is what's being said. Here's the point. As we move towards Mark 6, this is the way it's always been. That those who go out and proclaim the message of God, the good news that in Christ there's hope, if we go proclaim this message, we will be opposed. And not only the message will be hated, but in some cases, we too will be hated. The story we're going to read is a story about the deceitfulness of sin and the cost of discipleship. That there are people living in sin, and when they're confronted with the truth, they will hate the truth and may likely hate the messenger. Before we jump in, let me say one more thing about the context, because I think this is really significant in helping us recognize what the main point of this text is. We're going to talk a lot about the the characters and their sin, but the main point, consider the context. Jesus goes to Nazareth at the beginning of chapter 6, right? He's rejected. Last week, we saw the sending of the 12, and Jesus tells them, you're going to go in some places, and they're not going to hear you, and they're not going to have you. It ends there in verse 13 with the disciples going out. If you look down in your Bibles to verse 30, we see their return. Verse 13, they go out. Verse 30, they return. In the middle, we have this story about a messenger of God getting his head chopped off. And I think what Mark is screaming through the structure of this story and where it's put in this chapter is if you go out, you may lose your head. So I think it's the main point of the story. But as we go, we're going to talk also about the deceitfulness of sin and why people oppose. All right? You know it's my habit. What I, I, what I like to do is just to read the whole text to you and then walk through it. But it's a long text, and so we're going to change things up a bit. We're just going to kind of go verse by verse, section by section. We're just going to work our way through the story. If you want to know the end, go ahead and read the end. But we're not going to get there yet, okay? We'll start in verse 14, Mark chapter 6. The word of God says, King Herod heard of it. Okay, I'm not going to stop after every phrase, but I'm going to stop after this first one because King Herod heard of what? Well, where have we been? Jesus going out proclaiming the gospel, and now he sent his disciples to go out and to proclaim this message of repentance, and King Herod hears about it. Okay? He heard that there's this man, Jesus, this miracle-working prophet, who now is not only taking, this message himself, but sending out disciples. 
Verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So people are talking. Some people said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I beheaded, has been raised. Let's stay in the context. The disciples are traveling around sharing the message of Jesus. Now we see that people are talking. This, we would expect this, right? There's a man healing people, raising people from the dead. People are talking. Who is he? Who do you think he is? Maybe he's John the Baptist. At this point, John the Baptist is dead. Maybe he's John the Baptist back from the dead. That's why he has these powers, because if someone died and came back from the dead, this kind of spiritual resurrected prophet, surely that kind of person would be able to do these kinds of things. Maybe that's who it is. I do think it's ironic that people are willing to believe in resurrection at this point. <laughs> but when someone actually rises from the dead, they don't believe. But here we are, people asking, who is Jesus? And we come to King Herod. Herod hears about it. He too is trying to answer this question of who he is. Some people have suggested that it could be Elijah. That Elijah is the one who, who has come back. We, we think of the prophet Malachi and that prophecy that before the great day of the Lord, Malachi 4, 5, behold, I'll send Elijah the prophet before you on the great and awesome day the Lord comes. Some people thought it was Elijah. Others said he's just one of the He's just another prophet like those prophets of old. There's all this speculation. And King Herod hears it, and he has a theory himself. But first, let's stop and consider, who's King Herod? Or maybe the right question is, which King Herod is this? <laughs> because no less than four, there's no less than four different Herods referred to in the New Testament, okay? Which King Herod is this? We may remember that when Jesus was born, there was a ruler named King Herod. He came to be known as Herod the Great. He's the one, you'll remember back in the, at the birth of Jesus, he's the one who heard that there had been a king of the Jews born. Do you remember what he did? He felt threatened that, uh, that the Jews were going to rise up led by this king. And so Herod commands that every two-year-old boy, two and under in the whole region, be slaughtered. They call him Herod the Great. He ruled over Palestine, for those of you who like dates, from 37 B.C., before Christ, to 4 A.D. When he died, his kingdom was divided into four regions. And four of his sons took over these four regions. So he had ruled over this entire part, but then when he dies, it's broken up into four smaller parts with a ruler over each one. And they're not called kings, actually. They're called Tetrarchs. Tetra meaning four. Last part meaning rule. So ruler over a fourth. Okay? Now the Herod in our text is one of the four sons who's given one of these four regions. His name is Herod Antipas. 
he ruled over the region of Galilee and Perea. Mark calls him a king, but like I said, he's one-fourth king. He's over Galilee, which is right where John the Baptist ministered, where Jesus ministered. So it's no surprise that he hears of it. And he's curious who this is. Obviously, no ordinary man. Some suggest he's Elijah. Others have suggested that he's a, a prophet. He has an idea of who he thinks it is, and we see that it's born of a guilty conscience. Herod's theory, what he feared to be true, was that this Jesus was, in fact, John the Baptist back from the dead. And not just back from the dead, but back to haunt him personally. Now, why the guilty conscience? Why is he so quick to think that Jesus is John the Baptist who's come back? Well, it's because of his history with John the Baptist. And because Jesus has come proclaiming the same message that he had heard before. See, he has a history with John the Baptist telling him to repent. And now there's this other man with the same message. And people are suggesting he could be John the Baptist returned from the dead. What's going on? What's the backstory? Well, Mark gives us the backstory. See, verse 14 to 16, it's, we're just right in the same time. King Herod hears of Jesus going out, the disciples going out. There's theories about who he is. And then Mark takes us back and tells us why this talk of John the Baptist returning brings up all these thoughts in King Herod's mind. Let's look at, starting in verse 17, this flashback. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, Herod, had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and Herod kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and he heard him gladly. So short story here. Herod has John arrested and put in prison because John was calling him out for the relationship he was in. And while the text doesn't indicate much about Herod's response necessarily, we're told that his wife, Herodias, she has a grudge against John. She's demanding something be done. And so Herod, wanting to appease his wife and also probably wanting to silence John, puts him in prison. Now, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Who's John the Baptist? Most of us know. Let's just keep it in mind here. He's a man who had given his life to the service of God. He had lived a life of complete surrender, serving as the forerunner of the Messiah. He preached this message of repentance, announcing Christ's coming. Can we go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 7? He preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's this fearless preacher, this faithful prophet, giving his life to the service of God. 
and known for his good reputation. Do you remember what Jesus says about John the Baptist? Remember Jesus' testimony of John the Baptist? We read it in Luke chapter 7, verse 28. He says, I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. That's who we're talking about here. This is no small figure in the history of the proclamation of the gospel. This is a mighty man of God, one of whom Jesus says there is none greater. It's high praise. And yet what we see is that John finds himself in prison and eventually beheaded by Herod. Why? Well, we've already alluded to it. Let's look at it a little closer. Verse 17. It was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And what we get here is a small glimpse into a really sordid family tree. And it's worth taking a minute to share with you what I spent half my week trying to figure out, okay? This twisted family tree. See if you can follow this. I'll do my best. I already mentioned that Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. Herodias, his now wife, is also a descendant of Herod the Great. She was the daughter of Antipas's half-brother, Philip. Tracking so far? King Herod has some sons. One of them is Herod Antipas. One of them is this guy Philip, a half-brother. Philip has a daughter named Herodias. Now Herodias ended up marrying another guy named Philip. Actually, another half-brother of her dad and of Antipas. We could say it this way. She married her uncle Philip. Her dad's name was Philip. She had another uncle named Philip. She marries him, okay? That's not all. At some point, she comes into a relationship with her other uncle, Antipas. She's married to her uncle. Now she's having an affair with her other uncle. And we read from Josephus, a historian, that she, he asks her to leave Philip and to marry him. She says, under one condition, you divorce your wife. See, he was married too, to a princess from a kingdom nearby. So he divorces his wife. She divorces her husband, his brother. It's quite the love story, isn't it? A king divorces his wife so he can marry his niece, who is also his brother's wife. Where does John come into the story? John sees what's going on in the ruler of the region, and he confronts the king. We've read in verse 18. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. So we picture what's going on here. Herod's the ruler over the region in which John the Baptist lived and ministered. And John, as a prophet of God, goes to the ruler of the region and calls him out for not obeying the law of God. He says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Let's not even talk about adultery. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, 21 makes it very clear you should not have a relationship with your brother's wife. So John goes to Herod, not just once, but the verse says that he had been saying to him. He had been going to him and going to him and telling him, you must repent. 
See, that's connection back to where we were, repentance. He's going to someone who is committed to this life of sin, and he's telling him, you must repent. And I want you to consider here the boldness of John. It's one thing to stand up in front of crowds of people and say, repent. I would argue that's easier to stand in front of a huge crowd and call people in mass to repent as opposed to going to the leader of your region who has the power with a word to kill you and speaking truth. That's what we see John doing. He's willing to speak truth, not only when it's easy and advantageous, but when it could cost him everything. Parentheses. How willing are you to speak truth when it's hard? Herod Antipas was a shrewd and malicious man. Remember who his dad was. His dad was the one who killed every child under two years old, every male child under two years old. And the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Antipas was corrupt and ruthless. And John had to know that confronting Herod would lead to trouble, but he also knew what God had called him to do. He was sent by God with a message, and he fulfilled his calling. One commentator said that John did not read the polls before speaking and acting. He protected no special interests, nor did he predicate what he said on the chances of success. John's was a costly courage. In doing so, he risked a swift end, which eventually came from a cold sword. Seeing all these connections coming together, the deceitfulness of sin, the call to repentance, and the opposition that we're sure to receive if we stand for truth. We see all of it here. Herod and Herodias are happy in their sin. John is courageous in his stance for the truth. And when John confronts their sin, he experiences significant opposition. Go to verse 19 again. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. Let's just stop for a second and consider how irrational we become when we're trying to justify our sin. The links that we will go to to try to cover up our sin, to hide it, and to justify it. That's what we see here with Herodias. She had divorced her husband and married her uncle. She was living for herself and doing whatever she pleased. And when she saw someone threatening to stand in her way, she burned with anger. So much anger that she was willing to kill. Now, hopefully, I'm just going to throw this out there. Hopefully, you've never been involved in plotting someone's death. But I think we all know what it's like to be filled with the desire that rules our hearts. Makes me think of James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? What is it? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. What we see in the story in Mark 6 and also said so clearly by James is that sin can capture our hearts and make us irrational and make us do things that we never would have done otherwise. Why? Because I want to, right? Because I like it. Sin deceives us. It makes us irrational. We become so fixated on what we want that we'll do whatever it takes to get it. And once we have it, we'll do whatever it takes to keep it. We see Herodias, she did not only want John silent, she wanted him dead. 
but she couldn't kill him. Why not? Her husband stands in her way, verse 19. But she could not kill him, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and Herod kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. If that seemed confusing, which side is Herod on? If you're wondering what's going on with him, let me show you. This is a prime example of how complicated sin makes life, okay? It's complicated because we're constantly at war with our conscience. We're constantly feeling the tension between the truth and our desires. And we see this tension within Herod. He was not willing to repent, but he wasn't ready to kill John either. We're told in verse 20 that he feared John because he knew John was a righteous and holy man. He wasn't ready to repent, but he was kind of intrigued by the things that John said. Not the repentance part, but he has other things he's saying that are interesting. I can't help but wonder if we've been there. If you've been there. You keep coming to church because there's something about the message you like. But then you've got this sin that you're not willing to repent of. We see this mixed bag with Herod. He heard John gladly. He was interested in some of the things that John had to say. But he was not willing to repent. And this is so common. Being drawn to the things of God on a surface level, but unwilling to let go of sin. We keep some of the things of God around us because it makes us feel good. I'm not going to kill the righteous and the holy man. I'm just keeping them safe from my wife. But hanging on to that sin. So we see here. Herod's content to live in his sin, but not ready to repent. But he's fearful of John. What we see is that sin causes confusion. Sin is irrational. It leads to irrational decisions. That really gets ratcheted up in verse 21. Verse 21. An opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and his leading men of Galilee. Throws a party for himself. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, if this is a movie, parents, this is where you put your finger on the fast-forward button because it's a party scene, and <laughs> it doesn't look like we're going to keep it G-rated. But you know what I'm saying? If this is a movie, this is where things are really getting intense. Herod throws a party. The who's who of Galilee are there. Nobles, military commanders, leaders of the region. Everybody who's anybody is there for the party. They're being served the best food, probably the best drink. And as the night goes on, things get more and more interesting. It was customary at the party for there to be entertainment. And entertainment there was. And if you've not already been convinced of the depravity of this family, notice what happens here. The entertainment was provided by none less than the daughter of Herodias. We're not told his name here, but her name here, but historians tell her her name is Salome. She comes and dances. Now, entertainment was normal, but it was normally a common woman or a prostitute. How these important men 
who were looking for important women must have perked up when the princess comes in to entertain them. We'll just say what the verse says. She pleased Herod and his guests. Again, we see the tailspin that sin creates. His daughter, stepdaughter's dancing. Everyone's excited. He's either trying to impress her or to impress the crowd, probably both. And so what does he say? Whatever you want, it's yours. I'll give you anything, up to half my kingdom, which is most likely a figure of speech. I'll give you whatever you want. It's also interesting to note that he was only a fourth ruler of the kingdom, and he wasn't sovereign. He actually couldn't give anything away, okay? But it's this figure of speech. Whatever you want, it's yours. He makes this vow, and he leaves the door wide open for Herodias to get what she's wanted. Remember back in verse 21, we're told that she spots an opportunity. Salome, probably only 15, 16, she goes to her mom for advice. Verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? Herodias said, The head of John the Baptist. Salome came immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. If you're tempted at all to think of Salome as a helpless victim, pay attention to verse 25. Seems like she's all in. She doesn't question her mom. She goes immediately with haste, and she even adds her own request. Her mom said, give me the head of John the Baptist. Salome said, put it on a dish. That's really in the Bible? <laughs> That's the question. Yes. Because there have always been, there's always been the sin nature. There's always been people who love sin. And sin leads to irrational places. A girl asks for a man's head on a platter. Sin is irrational, it's deceitful. For Herodias, it started as an affair, and now it's led to exploiting her daughter and conning her husband into killing a man. And of course, Herod could have refused. Couldn't he? He's the king. He could say, no, I'm not killing John. But once again, sin has backed him into a corner he doesn't think he can get out of. So we see in verse 26, it says, The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and because of his guests, he did not want to break his word. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. You've probably heard the saying, I tried to figure out where it came from and I, I couldn't find it. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. That certainly seems to be the case for Herod. 
Verse 26 says that when he heard the requests, he was exceedingly sorry. But his sin had led him to a place where he did not think he had any other choice. When it came down to choosing between breaking his oath in front of all these people or killing a man, he decided the easiest choice was to kill a man. His pride couldn't take the hit. Think of the emotions. He was so worked up, he made this huge promise. I'll give you whatever you wanted. And he had to follow through, or so he thought. Because sin is irrational. This is where sin leads us. Take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. Here it leads to the head of a great prophet on a platter. And let's not separate this head from who we know this was, is. The one who proclaimed the coming of the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who baptized our Lord. The one who Christ had called the greatest of all born among women. And now his head is on a platter. And passed first from the executioner, then to the girl, and then to her mother. This is how the life of John the Baptist ends. Sorry. But of course, we know that this is no, by no means the end. John spent his life pointing to Jesus, and in many ways, his death was a foreshadowing of the death of Christ. Think of this. Jesus, like John, would be executed by a secular ruler. Pilate, like Herod, did not want to execute, but he saw no way out. Herodias, like the chief priests, schemed to see the death carried out. And after death, both John and Jesus were tenderly buried by their followers. Verse 29. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. John's death was a foreshadowing of the death of Christ. But hear this, church. The resurrection of Christ was a foreshadowing of John's resurrection. And the foreshadowing of your resurrection if you repent and believe. This is our hope that we will be raised. But we can't look past the fact that John suffered and died for the message he proclaimed, as did our Lord. And Jesus says, who all who come after me can expect to receive what I have received. We have the greatest message in the world that people can be forgiven their sins and saved from the wrath of God, but we will be opposed. Because like we said last week, the good news is not always received as good news. Many who hear the good news will be too committed to their sin to turn to Christ. At times, they won't only hate the message, but they will hate the messenger. It's the cost of discipleship. I think as we, as we watch the news, we may be tempted to think that it's worse now than it has ever been. We may be tempted to think that the gospel is too restrictive to be believed in a day like today. But this is the message that we've been called to share, and we trust that we go not in our own power, but with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a message worth giving everything for. We're almost done, but I appreciated this, the way another pastor 
spoke of this final part of this passage. He said this, Whenever the good news goes out, it is not always well received. It can lead to unbelief and opposition, but you need not despair. Human opposition there will always be, and yet it cannot stop the word of God in its course. It did not stop. The word of God did not stop when John was killed, and it did not stop when they crucified our Lord. The word of God and the plan of God cannot be stopped. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. To oppose God is always a futile thing. So let's be faithful. May it be said of us that we are faithful witnesses. Let us also be aware of the deceitfulness of sin. Let's guard our hearts with all diligence. Let's be a people with clear conscience before God. Let's be bold in our profession of what is true and let's proclaim the name of Jesus, come what may. It's not an accident that Mark includes this story sandwiched within the sending and the return of the 12. We must be aware of the cost. We can also be mindful of the promises of Christ. I'll end with Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter says to Jesus, See, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mothers, or father, or children, or lands for my sake in the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come you'll receive eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You may be despised by kings in this life, but you will reign with the king in the life to come. So don't lose heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you for those of us who have been given hearts of repentance. We say thank you. Sin had a grip on us that we could not loosen on our own. And it's only because of the power of your spirit that we've been given repentance. Hearts that desire to repent. We thank you that because we've repented, we've been brought into relationship with you. We rejoice in that. And God, we ask now that you would make us faithful ambassadors, faithful proclaimers, of the message of repentance. God, you've shown us in your word what standing for the truth can lead to. Your word is full of these examples. We know that the cost of discipleship is high, but we know that it is worth it. God, I pray that we would see you as worth walking away from our sin, that following you is worth parting with our fleshly desires. We want to see you as worthy as, that you are worthy of being proclaimed no matter the cost. So we ask that you would make us faithful witnesses and faithful disciples of yours.
Thank you for the testimony of John. And thank you for the hope that on the day when we are raised, he will be raised. And we will all live in eternity together, celebrating you for all time. Thank you for the gathering of your church. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.